Why didn't you sing the rest of the hymn? And he said, this old man said, he said, I couldn't stand it, the joys that are coming. When I anticipated all the rest of what that hymn taught me, think, it goes on to talk about sweet fields beyond the flood and how the rolling Jordan was keeping Israel from their heart's desire. And that, that hymn, There is a Land of Pure Delight, it ends with the verse, if we could just climb where Moses stood and view the landscape over, it wouldn't be Jordan stream or death's cold flood that would frighten us from the shore. And so we get these pictures, and that's one of the great things. As you read your Bible, as you read your Old Testament, is be looking, how can this story, that's not to say that that story is not, doesn't have its own meaning, and doesn't, God doesn't have his purpose in that, but be looking intentionally with your eyes. How, does, how can I use this to describe these deep pains and frustrations and longings of my heart? And Friday afternoon, I had my day all set up, and I was going to go home in the afternoon and study. And I happened to be by, driving by the Faye's house. And I called Laura, and I said, could I come and see Bill? And she said, well, he's had a lot of visitors, but you could come for a short time. Well, that 15 minutes turned into four hours, the most delightful afternoon I had in a while, the most precious time to spend with the family and with Bill. But, of course, my mind was all geared to be thinking about crossing over Jordan, ending the promised land. And so I couldn't, that whole conversation that afternoon in my mind was being shaped by sensing that Bill was not far from entry into glory. And I wake up this morning to preach, and I get this, this email in my inbox that, that he had crossed over. And so we, we, we need to hold on to these images. You know, many of us have, if you've been to Sam Lewis, you know, we love the view up on Sam Lewis. We can see forever. Well, what roads is Sam Lewis on? Sam Lewis is on Mount Pisgah Road. Well, why is that? It's because our ancestors knew that Mount Pisgah is where Moses saw the promised land from. And they used to put, they used to give their churches these names and used to think in these categories. And we've lost a lot of that. We don't tend to even know well, Mount Pisgah. That's a strange name. Most Christians, you're, you, you should be ashamed of yourself if you don't know that, uh, not to point fingers. The people who don't read the Bible, we can expect them not to know that. But we should know these things. We should know our scriptures. We should know the stories. That's, what God, that's why God says to Joshua in this chapter, he says, put stones up so that when people say, the kids say, what are these stones for? You can say, that's because God set the people free through the Jordan River. God doesn't want us to forget. And so it's good sometimes to remember these funny names and these Hebrews names. They, they've got a lot of content behind them. And so we'll get a glimpse of that. We'll get a foretaste of entering the promised land today. But there's so much more going on in this chapter. And that's where I want to go today. So just to set the, the physical background. So where is this taking place? This is taking place in the plains of Moab. Where's that? That's just above the Dead Sea. You probably have seen a picture of Israel. You see where the Dead Sea is. You know where that is. So Israel has been just to the west of the Dead Sea. Just to the east of the Dead Sea. I'm sorry. I'm going to do this backwards because I'm facing the wrong way. But picture in your mind, pull out your Bible map if you need it, if you've got one in the back of your Bible, pull it up on your phone briefly. There's the Dead Sea, just above the Dead Sea, and to the right of it, Israel's there on the plains of Moab. And they've been there for some time. They've been there since Numbers 22. The whole book of Deuteronomy takes place on this east side of the Jordan. In Deuteronomy 2.25, Moses was recounting the history of Israel. And he said, Deuteronomy 2.25 says, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So God said, this very day, I'm going to begin to give you victory over your enemies, and that is going to put the fear of God into the rest of the enemies. And so that very day, they, they march on Sihon. Sihon. There's these two kings that we never talk about, or you might have heard their names, Sihon and Og. And you think, oh yeah, funny names, Old Testament kind of stuff. But what we miss, we, we jump right from the wilderness wanderings, and we tend to jump right into crossing the Jordan. But what God's been doing before that is that Israel, under Moses, while Moses is still alive, Israel has marched from 
the Dead Sea all the way up to Gilead, which is where like the Golan Heights are today, just east of the, of the Sea of Galilee. And they have destroyed and wiped out nations and cities. It says that these were the Amorites. There were over 60 cities with high walls, gates, and bars, plus many other unwalled towns. But see, we get to Jericho, and we say, there's this big town, there's this big city, they've got to knock the walls down. They've already destroyed 60 cities with walls and fortresses. And that's why Jericho is afraid. That's why when Rahab gets the message, he's like, we've got something to fear. Because Israel has already wiped out the entire wicked people on the whole east coast of the Jordan River. And they fought their way up. They took plunder. They took spoil. Now they're back there in the plains of Moab. They're only about five miles from the Jordan River. And on the other side of the Jordan River, about five miles over, is the city of Jericho. So for about 10 miles distance, they could probably even see each other. The Israelites, perhaps as many as two or three million people, and the people in Jericho. And this is the scenario that we're looking at. It's in this area that, uh, the, as Pastor Rodney mentioned last week, the Israelites had committed uh, idolatry and fornication with the women of Midian and, and Moab, and God punished. Uh, 24,000 Israelites were killed in a plague. But as a result of that, the last action that Moses did before he died is he authorized under God's uh, direction the destruction of Midian. And these would be people to the, to the east of them. As they kill the Midianites, just think of this. This gives you some real pictures to think about. What does it look like? We just think of, here's a group of people, there's a group of people. When they destroyed the Midianites, just before they entered the Promised Land, they took 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cows, 61,000 donkeys, and this kind of out of our category, but God had them kill all the men and all the young boys, the idolaters, as well as any woman who had had relations with man. And But 32,000 Midianite women were joined to the people of Israel. So these are the people who are about ready to cross the promised land, enter the promised land, 675,000 sheep, thousands and thousands of cattle. God was spoiling the Egyptians yet again, taking the riches of the ungodly to give to his people as they enter the promised land. But they're sitting there, and they're anticipating just miles away. They can see Jericho. Jericho's got walls. It's 10 miles away. I'm sure the Israelites could see these walls. And they're sitting. Just at the end of the book of Numbers, we know that Israel had a census had been taken, Israel had 600,000 men of war. This is where we are, 600,000 warriors. Is it any wonder that the Canaanites are afraid of Israel? In a sense, we should think of this in a real, very real sense. This is like the Ukrainians waiting for the Russians to invade. The motives are different, the scenario is different, but Israel's massed, millions of people massed right across the border waiting to enter and destroy the ungodly. And we know that the Canaanites are afraid but I just want to stop and think about the leader of the people of Israel for a minute. This is Joshua. Sometimes we get the idea that Joshua's a rookie and he's a new guy on the town, but he's not. Three months after they left Israel, or left Egypt, Moses told Joshua, he said, go get some guys and fight the Amalekites. Joshua's a seasoned warrior even before they get into the land of, of Israel. So Joshua's with Moses the entire time, when, remember that story when Moses is sitting there holding his hands up fighting the Amalekites and he gets so tired because Aaron and her have to hold his arms up and Moses is just sitting there and he's weary and tired? Well, Joshua was down fighting in the valley the entire day. Nobody was holding his hands up. You know. So Moses gets the glory, but it says Joshua won the victory there in that book of Numbers or Exodus. So Joshua is a seasoned battle warrior. He's been there for defeating the Amorites, Sihon, Og, and all these other these warriors. He's with Moses when they go to the top of Mount Sinai to get the tablets of the, of, of the law for 40 days. He's with there with Moses. And he was, this, he was one of the faithful spies. 
As I said, he, he, he made it into the promised land. They went from the south all the way to the north. He's seen the promised land. But because of the sin of the others, he was kept out. And so I can imagine the anticipation that Joshua has to get there. But also the nervousness. This is his first action without Moses there. This is the first time he's got to lead a people without Moses to ask for advice. And God had said, be strong and courageous. And Joshua's not a rookie. Joshua's not a young man. He's at least 60, perhaps 70. Caleb is 85 at this point. But Joshua, this is his first action, leading these people. And we will see that God is going to do something great, not only for the Israelites, but for Joshua in this story. So let's begin. And what I want to do is kind of go over, now that we set that stage, I want to go over, kind of tell the story, and then go back and look at some of the, the details, what, what we can learn of why God might have put these two chapters in the Bible. So it says in Joshua 3, that Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, as Pastor Rodney mentioned, this, this area just five miles from the Jordan River, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and they stayed there the night before they crossed over. So they got to the river, they spent one more night right there on the brink of Jordan. And after three days, the officers went through the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you go, for you have not passed this way before. And so he tells the Israelites to be looking for two things. They're to be looking for the Ark of the Covenant. Well, he tells them two things. They're to be looking for the Ark of the Covenant to start moving, and they're supposed to keep their distance from the Ark of the Covenant. We'll, we'll develop it later. But the Ark of the Covenant is a major subject matter of these two chapters. It comes up 17 times with a name specifically or used, referred to as it or the, the Ark of the Covenant. So this is a major thing that we'll revisit in a bit. So the Israelites are supposed to be watching for the ark and waiting for it to start moving, and then they're supposed to follow it, but they're supposed to keep a distance from, behind, from around it. And he says to the people, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua wants the people's hearts and minds to be ready so that they fully grasp all that's said. And you could come to church on a Sunday morning, and a sermon could be preached. But if you were up late the night before, you're watching movies or are out doing whatever you do on a Saturday night. You could physically be here and a sermon could be preached, but you could miss a lot that was being said because your mind is not engaged. And Joshua says to the people, I don't want you to miss. I don't want you to miss any of the significance that's going to happen tomorrow. Sanctify yourself. Set yourself apart. Wash. Be, be prepared. Um, there's various things that will be involved with that. But there's a sense in which they need to prepare their hearts and minds before they cross the Jordan. And then Joshua speaks to the priests and says, take up the Ark of the Covenant. This will be the next morning, the day of crossing. Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, this is a key verse that is very important. Listen to this. This is not what we would expect to read in the great crossing of the Jordan passage. The Lord says to Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And we'll find out this is one of the reasons that the crossing of Jordan happens, because God is going to exalt Joshua. Again, that's not what we would expect to read, but it's here. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, when you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And he said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you, 
and then he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, and the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. I just want to pause there. You know, we, again, we, we struggle with those names, but if you understand the history, you understand who these people are. They are the most feared people, the most wicked and ungodly people in the world of the Middle East at that time. And the reason that they're often called Canaanites is because they're all descended from the son of Ham, named Canaan. And Canaan's own sons were the ones who perpetuated these different tribes, the Amorites, the Girgashites. You see that Genesis chapter 10. But these are the wicked people. These are the ones when God told Abraham 400 years earlier, he said, your people aren't going to come in yet because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Well, well, now it is. And what they're going to do as they go across the Jordan that morning is they're going to see and gain confidence that God has the power and the faithfulness to drive out these enemies. In verse 11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people. And as those who bore the ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water, now, he puts a parenthesis in there. He stops just for a minute. But you want to know what's happening next. And he goes and says, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. So he kind of breaks some of the momentum. Well, we have to stop and think about this flooded river. But they dipped their, ed- their, their feet in the edge of the water. And the waters came down from upstream, stood still, and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zaratan. So the waters that went down into the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, or we would say the Dead Sea, failed and were cut off. And the people crossed over opposite Jericho. And I just want to stop and think about setting the scene here, talking a little bit about the state of the Jordan River. The Jordan River today has been diverted a hundred different ways for irrigation, for drinking water, so it's barely a trickle as it enters the Red Sea or the Dead Sea. We don't exactly know how wide it was then, but we certainly know that it was flooded. And even as late as the 1800s, before they started to dam up the river, it was quite a feat to get across the Jordan River when it was flooded and at that stage. I think about the poor spies, because it's flooded, and they had to go across and come back in flooded water, and they're about ready to walk across on dry ground. And so I think the irony of that, like, I don't know what it took for them to get across this flooded water and to come back, and the next day, or that very next day, to just walk across on dry ground. But the, the terrain there is you have flat ground on the Moab side, and you have flat ground on the Jericho side, and then you have this deep gully in between. There's a rift, there's a... Um, it's called the Jordan Rift Valley. It's a deep, um, kind of like you have in California where you have a lot of earthquakes. The tectonic plates of the earth are shifting. There's this deep rift and shifting that runs from Jordan all the way down into, into, into Africa, the Great Rift Valley there, even into Kenya. And this deep depression there causes a lot of earthquakes, even to this day. But at the very bottom of this depression is the Jordan River. And it would normally flow in that deep depression, but sometimes when it would flood, it would come up to where it was more flat. And so when the priests were about to step into the water, they didn't have to go down into the water. They just had to walk to the edge of the water, as the Susquehanna gets sometimes when it floods. And they, they just had to walk there to the edge. Now, you know, the Israelites have been at Moab the entire time, waiting 
Like, when do we go over? When do we go over? And they sit there, and they're probably watching the waters rise. It's springtime. Most of the Jordan River is flooded. The reason that it floods at springtime is because in that part of the world, harvest comes at a different time of year than it does here. And a lot of the snow that lands on Mount Hermon, up in the north part of Israel, that begins to melt. And it begins to feed the Jordan River, and the, the river starts to rise. And so the Israelites are probably sitting there thinking, it's going to get harder and harder for us to get across this water because it's flood stage. So we're going to have to wait a lot longer, but why would God have us wait till now when it's a flood stage to cross? But now this is where they are. They find themselves at flood stage when it's the most deep and most treacherous to cross. But God keeps his word. As the priests step into the water, it says that the waters that came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam. It's probably about, about, as best that we can tell today, that city is about 15 miles north of where this crossing takes place. And it's not immediately clear whether the water started to back up right above the Israelites, and so it just got taller and taller and taller and began to back up to Adam. But as I read it and understand it, it seems more likely that there was a blockage up at Adam, 15 miles away. And so by the time that happened, there was, the Israelites basically couldn't even see any water. It wasn't just like a little trickle that we had to march six, two million people through. But it's a very wide opening and gap. Certainly the water downstream from them completely dried up. This isn't the Red Sea where it's like a big lake. This is more of a flowing river. And so as soon as the water from up above is cut off, the water down below them is, is gone. There's not even any water at all. But as we read this and understand this, it seems that even 15 miles upstream there wasn't any water, which would allow the Israelites with all their 675,000 sheep and all these other things that they've accumulated to go over. You think about if you get... 2 million people a day, or 2 million people trying to cross the river, and you've got a 100-foot stretch of river, that's not going to be a quick crossing. But these people are going to get across quick because there's going to be such a gap. And they're not, as best I can understand it, they're not even seeing any water at this point because of how far back upstream the river is backed up. Did God do that with an earthquake? Very possibly. Things continue to happen today. As late as 1927, there was an earthquake at Adam that dammed up the river, whether it actually stopped the river or not, we're not sure, not, not clear reporting. But the point is that these things happen frequently. So even if, whether God spoke and stopped the water or whether God sent an earthquake at the exact right time, it's still a miraculous thing for this to happen. And God's power is clear as these people see the water just disappear in front of them. But as the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant, verse 17, of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. And it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua and said, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. That would be on the Jericho side of the Jordan River. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. Now we don't know how big these stones were. How how big of a stone can you carry on your shoulder? That's going to give you some idea of how big these stones. They couldn't have been boulders. Each guy's got one of these. So the the pillar of twelve that they're going to build can't be that big of a pillar because these men are carrying these stones. But each one's got a, a, a stone on his shoulder. But then we find out why they're taking these stones out of the middle of the river. So that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, what do these stones mean to you? 
Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to him, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. So Joshua, now it seems to be this next verse Joshua does on his own initiative. They're going to have 12 stones, as God told them, outside the Jordan at the place called Gilgal. But then Joshua, verse 9, Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. So the priests who bore the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people. According to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, And the people hurried and crossed over. Then it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over, the crossing over is repeated here. This is a major, this is a significant thing. We're supposed to get the idea. When they crossed over, that the men of Reuben, the men of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed before the children of Israel, as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 of these men prepared for battle, crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass, when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet touched the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their places and overflowed all its banks as before. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jordan. Tenth day of the first month. Is that, is that significant? Well, that's the day that God said 40 years before, take a lamb into your house, because in four days you're going to kill it for the Passover. It's 40 years, 40, 41 years to the day. God's timing is, is precise. He spoke to the children of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And so again, we're, we're familiar with this story. We know this story. And I trust that we've gotten a little bit more rich idea of the story itself in these minutes we've spent looking at the story. But what I want to do with the rest of our time is reflect on some of these things. Why would this chapter be in the Bible? It's like, yeah, we like stories like this. We wish God would do these things every day. But he doesn't, and we know he doesn't do these things. But so what, what, what are some takeaways? Why, why would this be in the Bible? And the first thing I want to think about is how God exalts his servant. He said he would do that, and he did that. Let's read that again, Joshua 3, verse 7. This is one of the first um, statements that we get for why this chapter is here. Joshua 3, verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And over at 4, verse 14. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. This story 
a large reason the story's in here is because God is setting up and making his servant great. This is not Joshua making himself great. And this is not, this is not strictly God making himself great either. This is God making his servant great. And that's what the word means. Exalt means to make great. He says, God had said he would do that for Abraham. He said, I will make your name great. And he said he did that about Solomon. But he says that here about Joshua. So how does God make Joshua great? How does God make Joshua great in the story? This seems like Joshua's not doing much in this story. How does God make Joshua great? We don't typically think of Joshua as a prophet. But he makes a prophecy here. He says, priest, put your feet in the water. And when you put your feet in the water, the waters are going to part. And they did. So Joshua gets words from God, gives them to the people, and they come to be true. And they, they prove to be true. And so this, this fact that Joshua is serving as a prophet, announcing the words of the Lord to the people and that they come true, gives the people confidence that Joshua is speaking for God. This isn't Joshua putting himself forward. This isn't Joshua saying, well, Moses is dead. I'm going to fight my way to the top and I'm going to take charge here. This is God putting his stamp of approval on Joshua's ministry and on Joshua's um, leadership over his people. And what's interesting is that Joshua doesn't tell this to the people. He doesn't say, um, God's going to make me great today. What Joshua says to the people in verse 10 is, by this you will know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive you out from before the Canaanites. So God tells Joshua, I'm going to do this partly to make your name great and so the people will trust and honor and fear you. But Joshua doesn't go and tell this to the people. You see Joshua's humility in that. He doesn't say, well, I gotta, I'm, I'm going to I'm I'm feel better by the end of the day here. He knows that God is going to make his name great. And in making his name great, Joshua's name is going to be made great as well. So Joshua's prophecies are fulfilled. Well, how else does God make Joshua great? God makes Joshua great because Joshua's words are obeyed. You know, anytime there's a transition of leadership, there can be testing. There can be, like, is he going to be a soft leader? You know, Moses, you know, he, he could be kind of hard. What's, what kind of a leader is Joshua going to be? You know, he doesn't have Moses to go back to if we, we, we push against him. What kind of a leader is Joshua going to be? But God has the hearts of the people turned towards honoring and obeying Joshua. And the congregation obeys him. They get up, they march out, they wait, they cross, they pick up the stones, they put the stones down. The priests obey Joshua exactly as they're promised. But I think one of the key verses here, and this is really indicates how God is, is working here, is these verses in chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, they just sort of seem to be throwaway verses. Like, why would they even be stuck in here? But we're told specifically, not just that the Israelites crossed over, but that the men of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh crossed over as well. Why is that significant? That's significant because these tribes had asked for and been granted their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. All the Sihon, the Og, the Amorites, all this conquering and destruction that was already done, they said, we want our, our inheritance on that side. And Moses said, well, that's great. You can have your inheritance, but you've got to leave your wives and children there, and you need to come over and help your brothers fight because they helped to fight to clear your inheritance, you're not going to get off easy and say, well, we got what we want. You go fight the Jericho people now. So this, these two and a half tribes, 40,000 men, what did they do? They did not say, well, we made the promise to Moses, but we're not going to keep it to you. They could have bucked Joshua's authority, and they didn't. I think God, that's in here to show that God was honoring and blessing Joshua by giving him the respect of these people. And I think when the rest of the Israelites saw that these other tribes weren't going to rebel, they weren't going to push back, they knew that they had Joshua as a, very, a qualified and um, the kind of leader that they needed to have. Well, that's sort of how God um, 
exalted Joshua on this day. But why would God exalt Joshua? One of the reasons he exalted Joshua is to bring comfort to his people. If you look over at chapter 1, verse 17, and this is um, the people speaking to actually the Reubenites, Gadites, Manasseh, but I think also the people themselves speaking to Joshua. Joshua 1, 16 and 17, they said, all that you command us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go, just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. That was their prayer. We'll follow you, but we have to know that the Lord's with you, that you're following him and that you're taking us in the right path. Now, it might sound strange when they say, just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. You have to remember, this is the second generation. This is a faithful generation. That at the end of the book of Joshua, we find out they served Joshua faithfully. They served God faithfully as long as Joshua lived. This is not the rebellious parents. This is the obedient children who say, we obeyed Moses, we will obey you. But we can only do that if we know that God is with you. And we see that in chapter 3, verse 7. God says, I will exalt you in the sight of Israel so that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So he's giving comfort to his people. He's giving them the assurance that Joshua was the right leader and he's going to take them in good places. It's also going to instill in his people future confidence in him as, as a leader. They know that he will be... Um, be a good leader. And we see that theme carried throughout Scripture. God gives godly leadership to his people. He gave faithful, sometimes the people abuse their authority, but God was faithful to give godly leadership to the people throughout the Old Testament. You had the faithful prophets. You had some faithful kings. And you get to the New Testament, and Jesus is the faithful, faithful shepherd who gives good gifts to his people and good leaders to his church. God stamps his approval on many of his leaders, even after the time of Joshua. And I think that we see that most clearly in the life of our Savior himself. It was Joshua crossed around 1400 BC. So about 1400 years before Jesus lived, Joshua crossed here at the Jordan River. When the Jesus comes on the scene, he's a young man in his early 30s. And he's baptized by John, as best we can tell, almost in this exact spot where the Israelites crossed the Jordan River. And so Joshua receives his stamp of approval in front of the people here at the Jordan River. And when Jesus is baptized by John, what does the Father say? He said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to what he says. And so we see these hints and these shadows of Joshua, the leader, receiving the blessing and the approval of God to lead his people into safety and into the right paths. And God does this through our Savior, and our Savior does this through the godly leaders that he gives to his church. And so we see God's care and concern for his church even as he establishes this godly leadership in Joshua's life. But it's not only to exalt Joshua that this passage is here. Certainly it is also to exalt himself. So secondly, one of the reasons this passage is here is because God makes his presence and his power known. God makes his presence and his power known. How does God make his presence and his power known? Firstly, he does this through the Ark of the Covenant. I mentioned 17 times, if you count them, in these two chapters, the Ark is mentioned or referred to. So what is the Ark of the Covenant? This isn't Indiana Jones. I'm sorry. You know, don't take your theology from, from, from not all your maybe some, but you know, be very careful how much theology you take from Hollywood. Um, sadly, that might be more, we, more of us be more, we may, may be more familiar with some of these images than from what it says in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. But the Ark of the Covenant was a small box 
I had to leave. Yeah, Jennifer, I love my etymology. I had to look that up. Why do we call it an ark? We call it an ark because it means a box or a container. If you know the word arcane, that means something that's old or hidden or locked away, something, something forgotten in the past. Well, that's, what, that's why we use the word ark. It's the same word used for, the, for Noah's ark or for the ark that held Moses as a baby and also for the ark of the covenant. And sometimes we take that as a term like it's a name. Well, that's called the ark of the covenant. Well, it's more of a description than it is a name. It's the box that signifies the covenant or that contains the covenant or contains the Ten Commandments that are inside of it. But it becomes this symbol. It's basically, in a sense, we might call it Israel's constitution. This is their declaration of dependence. This is their connection with God. Exodus 20. I've led you out of Egypt, so follow me, be my people, but do these things. This is the, the, the bind between Israel and their God. And this is why this is significant. This is what this ark, this container of the covenant is. Normally, the ark is locked away in the Holy of Holies, and nobody gets to see it. On top of this ark, let me describe it, it's a box about two feet by two feet, about four feet long. It's not big, completely covered in gold. On top, you have two winged cherubim whose wings face each other. And this, that, that lid of the box of the, of the ark of the covenant is called the mercy seat or the place of atonement. And God said he would meet between the angels. When that was in the Holy of Holies, on the day of atonement, the high priest would go in there once a year, and God would meet there right between these two angels on top of this box of the Holy of Holies. So it signified the specific, actual presence of God on earth. This was the very holy object to the Israelites. But it signified God's presence among his people, this Ark of the Covenant, this box that these priests would carry. Now, I almost made the mistake of saying, well, they, they look out there and they see, this golden, they see this golden Ark being carried, and I realized, you know what? They didn't get to see that. Because whenever it was being carried through the camp, it was covered with a blue cloth. So there was something mysterious about it. They knew there was something beautiful, but they couldn't even, even the Israelites couldn't see it. God's presence was, dif- it was, it was distant. It was there, but it was distant. They knew that under that box, this is the symbol of God's presence here on earth. And yet, it's there, and we're here, and we can't even see it because we're not a high priest. But God makes his presence known in this box, this Ark of the Covenant. It represents the immediate presence of God. But notice a couple things in how this is presented in this chapter. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. What they're supposed to be watching for. Joshua 3, verse 3. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levites... Then you shall set out from your place and go after it. They're not supposed to be looking for the priests. The priests get the, they, they get the short end of the stick in this story. They just have to stand there in the river all day holding this box while the Israelites like, hurry up already. <laughs> My arms are getting tired. Get across. But they're there holding it, and they're, they're, not, they're not saying don't look for the priests. Look for the ark that's being carried by the priests, and then you'll know it's time to move. But this interesting detail in the next verse he said, but you shall, there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Don't come near it so that you may know the way by which you must go because you have not passed this way before. They're supposed to keep a distance of 2,000 cubits. Well, anybody speak cubit around here? You know, so I had to do the little conversion online thing. So 2,000 cubits, about a half mile, which as I stand here, if you go out that way, that way, down by the boat marina, by the river, that's about 2,000 cubits from here. So that gives you a sense in which how far the Israelites are supposed to be keeping their distance from the ark. And God doesn't say it's because the ark's holy and you're not. It says, keep the distance so that you can see it. Because you know how it is. Everybody wants to see an event. Everybody crowds in. So only the first two people get to see it and nobody else gets to see anything. But God wants the ark to be prominent in this story. He wants as many people as possible to see this. So he says, you'll see the ark moving. Don't you know, fight the urge to sneak up and get a sneak peek. Let the priests go so that when the priests are out there in the river, 
everybody's going to get a chance to see. So it's very central to the story, very distinct, and God wants everyone to see the Ark of the Covenant. Because this is central, because what's the Ark of the Covenant? It's God's special presence among his people. And then verse, chapter 3, verse 11. <clears throat> what's crossing over before them? It's the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth that is crossing over before you. It's not the priest carrying the Ark. It's the Ark itself. This is what you're supposed to get. Now, sadly, the later the Israelites will turn this into kind of their good luck charm. You know, we've got to take this into battle or we'll lose the battle. But this is the presence of God with his people who are at this time holy and faithful. That's why he's with them. And they go out there and they're supposed to be looking because <clears throat> the ark is going over. And then look down at verse, um, let's see, I lost my verse here, 311. Four, I think it's 4-7, okay. Yes, chapter 4, verse 7. When the kids ask later, what do these stones mean? This is what Joshua says this is supposed to tell them. You shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So what was it? What were they supposed to key in on? Not Joshua, not the priests, but the Ark of the Covenant. That was their thing that stopped the waters. When the Ark went in, the waters stopped. When God's presence entered, the waters stopped. And God often does this with these, these water themes throughout Scripture. God's power is shown in his control of water. We see that in the flood of, of Noah. We see that in the destruction of the Egyptians by the Red Sea. We see that here. We see this in the story of Jonah. Throw me over and the, water will, and the, and the sea will cease its raging. And everybody was terrified when that actually came true because they knew that the God of Israel was the God who could stop the sea from raging. We see this when Jesus is in the boat with the disciples, and he says, peace be still, and the water stops. When God wants to show his power, he often does this in his control and power over water. But here, it's the Ark of the Covenant going in before the people that brings this to, uh, to its head, and that the water stop when the Ark is brought over or crossed over. So God's making his presence and power known through the Ark. He's also making his presence known through the ministry of Joshua. Because he said, I will begin to exalt you so that they may know that I was, with, I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So the Israelites don't just see God's presence in the ark, they see it in Joshua himself. Because they know that Joshua, God is with Joshua. It's in the, it's in the man, Joshua, that they know and sense the presence of God. In both that and in the ark, God's presence is seen. And we again, we see these shadows of Christ. In both the substance of the ark, Christ is... The, the Hebrews tells us that everything in the Old Testament is types and shadows, but the reality, the spiritual is more real than the physical, is what Hebrews tells us. The spiritual is more real than the, than the physical. We, we, or the, actually, the immaterial is more real than the material. In the sense that with Christ, although he's not seeable right now because his body's in heaven, Christ is the fulfillment of the ark. And the Israelites want the ark because it's an object they can look to and the New Testament tells us Christ is the fulfillment. Christ is our propitiation. Christ is that place where God and man meet together. And that's who we need. That's why we need. It's in Christ's presence that we have that safety. So God's presence and his power are known. He makes his power known by this miraculous opening of the Jordan that we've discussed. Yeah, but think about how this difference, there's a difference in the crossing of the Jordan. And there's sweetness here for believers. As we think of the Jordan and the Red Sea. When they left the Red Sea, what were they doing? They were escaping from slavery. What were they doing when they crossed the Jordan? They were entering the promised land. Look at the, I, I made a comparison at, back home when I was studying. The, compare and contrast the differences in these two crossings. We know that God did this specifically because he's linking Joshua's approval with Moses's. 
because Moses got his stamp of approval there at the crossing of the Red Sea. The crossing of the Red Sea was at night. Israel's on the run. And God has the pillar of fire to light it up, but it's still at night, dark and gloomy. The crossing of the Jordan is at day with Israel on the advance. They're on the run, now they're on the advance. The crossing of the Red Sea was by means of Moses' rod. He holds up his rod. In a sense, it's a sign of judgment on Egypt. Israel's coming through, puts his rod down. Israel's wiped out, or Egypt's wiped out. But this crossing happens not by a rod held high, but by God's symbolic presence, that blood-sprinkled ark and mercy seat. It's in God's grace and mercy and personal presence that the Jordan is split wide open, unlike there in Egypt. When they crossed Egypt, it was very unsettling. How did it, why, did they, why did the Red Sea part? Because there was a strong east wind all night. Have you ever been out in the strong east wind? I don't know if, it, I don't, you have to look at the wind direction, but you've been out in the strong wind, right? And you know how unsettling that can be. It's just, the trees are blowing back and forth. There's just noise, constant noise in your ears. It's not a peaceful, calm existence or experience. That was the Red Sea. But this entrance into the promised land, and I think for us as believers, as we look and anticipate heaven, the crossing is calm and the waters disappear. And when Jesus says, the one that knows me will never taste of death, that's that, look, compare and contrast the two crossings, the Red Sea and the Jordan. The waters disappear when they cross into Jordan. That crossing was done by generally a faithless generation. That most of that generation died in the wilderness because of unbelief. This crossing is done by a faithful generation. And that crossing, the Red Sea, culminated in death for the Egyptians. That's the end of that story. This crossing ends with peace and rest for the Israelites. And so God's doing so much. You think of these stories and what they picture for us as God's doing this in this crossing. But the last reason that God gives us this chapter, these two chapters, is that he provides a way of remembering. He provides a way of remembering. God knew, Moses knew, we all know how easy it is to forget God's goodness and his mercy. And so what does he have him do in his kindness? He said, pick up some stones, pick up some, pick up some boulders, take them across and stick them up on the shore because you're going to forget, your kids are going to need to know why there's stones sitting there, this pile of rocks. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses was concerned that this would happen, that there would be a forgetfulness among the future generations. And he said in Deuteronomy 4, uh, verse 9, he said, take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. And he goes on to talk about all the amazing things God did for that first generation. But there's a danger of forgetting, and Moses was concerned that would happen. But God made provision that people wouldn't forget. He said, I'm not going to be splitting the Jordan River up every day. I'm not going to be giving a Red Sea experience every day. But I'll tell you, put up this pile of rocks and talk to your kids about it. Don't just do it. What, what, what's our tendency? Well, we'll put up this pile of rocks, and then we're going to go worship it. We're going to take, you know, this is what people tend to do. God gives you a good blessing, and it becomes something that gets abused and misused. But he says, talk to your kids. Set that pile of rocks up and talk to them about why this happened and how they need to know. Let me just read again those couple verses that talk about what they're supposed to say to their children when they see the stones. That's in uh, Joshua 4, 6, and 7. That this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you will answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And again in verse 21. When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? 
Then you shall let the children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until he crossed over as he dried, did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. I can't help but do turn over to Second Peter. Um, Peter and Joshua are very different kinds of people. Um, but I think they end their lives about the same way, faithfully in reminding the people. I just want to read 2 Peter 1, verses 10 through 15. This is what we need. Therefore, brothers, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them and you were established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent, Peter's about to die, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. So I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Remember, remember, remember. Don't forget, don't forget. And God's gracious enough to give these stones to his people to not forget his faithfulness. What are the stones in your life? Not to, get, not to completely jump to, to, to say that this is metaphorical, but there is a, a principle is established here that we should be doing things in our lives so that we remember God's faithfulness to us and to our children. How are we telling, this, are we telling the stories of God's faithfulness? This is a job for us as parents. Or if we're not parents and we know children, we have children in our lives, this is a job for us to teach the next generation the faithfulness of God because we all know our tendency to forget. And I gave this story when I started about last week feeling like I was at the Israelites at the Red Sea. But in the past year or so, as life's been difficult and challenging, I've told myself and I've told others so many times, like, I do not want to be like the Israelites in the wilderness saying, can God give me what I need? God's been so faithful. But our tendency in the next crisis is to always think it won't come through this time. We do it over and over again. It's a common human problem. I can't be the only one. We do it, and we shouldn't do it, because he's given us these marks of faithfulness. Don't be like the Israelites. Don't be like the first generation. Be like the second generation, who was faithful to God throughout the life of Joshua and the elders who outlived Joshua. So this is just a quick survey, two chapters, a story we're all familiar with. But again, we get this beautiful image of the life and pathway of the Christian. We're waiting for our time to cross over Jordan. And we know because of the grace of God and the death of Christ, you know, Joshua, he got a sneak preview of the promised land. He was a forerunner. He was a scout. He was a spy. And then he came back to lead the people across. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He's gone into the heavenly places. He's coming back one day to take us there too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for helping us. We know that without your spirit, we would not see or understand these things. And without your spirit, we will forget them. I pray that you would use these stories to capture our hearts and our imagination so that we would be faithful like this generation that, that lived with Joshua. And we look forward to the day when we join our brothers and sisters who in the past or even very recently have crossed the Jordan and have entered the promised land, we look forward to the day when we are reunited with them. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.
Please stand and sing with us once more. <laughs>